Welcome to Trade Matters, a podcast of the Clayton Yider Institute of International Trade and Finance at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I am Jill O'Donnell. Our guest today is Bruce Hirsch, founder of Tailwind Global Strategies. Bruce previously served as the U.S. Trade Representative's Chief Counsel for Dispute Settlement and as legal advisor to the U.S. Mission to the World Trade Organization. Bruce, thank you so much for being on Trade Matters today. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So the the topic today is a big one. Um, The WTO appellate body is something that I think we've been hearing about and may start hearing about even more as we get closer to a key date of December 11th, as, as you know very well, and you've written about this. Um, which is the date when two of the three remaining judges on this appellate body will retire, at which point there will be one left and and that body can no longer function there at the World Trade Organization. So it's a timely topic today, and I wanted to start by asking you a really basic question about what the World Trade Organization's appellate body is, what it does, and what need it was created to address. Can you just um, address those briefly to start out here? Sure. Um, the WTO dispute settlement system takes place in, in two stages. Uh, the first stage is uh, one uh, with ad hoc panelists, and then the appellate body handles the second stage, that is, uh, appeals from panels. Uh, the appellate body has uh, seven members, uh, each chosen for a four-year term, uh, which is renewable once. Um, the appellate body w- was created to, to correct panel legal errors. Uh, under the predecessor to the WTO, the, the GATT, uh, countries could block uh, dispute settlement panels from being formed or, or their results from being made official. Uh, so if, if a country felt that a panel had made an error, they could prevent the report from becoming official. Uh, but under the WTO dispute settlement, um, the reports become official automatically. Uh, WTO members who were negotiating the rules on dispute settlement were worried that if uh, panels make mistakes, they couldn't be corrected. Uh, so they created the appellate body as a backstop against uh, these kinds of mistakes. Could you talk a little bit as well about the appellate body's track record? I've seen reports before that indicate pretty high rates of compliance by countries with rulings overall in the dispute settlement process, including the appellate body. So can you talk a little bit about how that's worked over the last couple of decades since it's been in place? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the appellate body you know, has really brought a lot of legal rigor to the dispute settlement system. Um, previously, you know, the panelists were, were uh, rendering more informal uh, opinions, um, and so it has become much more rigorous. Uh, the appellate body also has brought a lot of consistency to the d- dispute settlement results since uh, they're all going to the appellate body now. Um, now, as for the, the question of compliance, uh, it, you know, really that has uh, you know, something to do with the fact that most of the results have been fairly well reasoned, but it also has something to do with the, fa- the simple fact that WTO members have a stake in, in the success of the dispute settlement system. Uh, they really are complying because they want others to comply as well when they lose. And you know, this it, you know, goes to the, you know, the reason for the system in the first place, and, and that is to uh, avoid, uh, in part at least, to avoid you know, tit-for-tat retaliation like we're, we're seeing now with the various trade wars. You know, since countries don't like to admit that they're breaking the rules, uh, when another country accuses them of doing so, they generally will deny it. Um, and with the benefit of a neutral third-party adjudicator, they can, uh, countries can accept that they need to make changes rather than just digging in and, and retaliating in turn. 
So let's talk a little bit about uh, why we're down to three judges right now. So the United States, as you know, has blocked the appointment of additional judges to the appellate body as retirements have occurred um, because of uh, as a way of bringing attention to some complaints that the United States has over how that body has operated, like um, overreaching its mandate, perhaps, or not operating under timeframes that are set out under which it should operate. So can you talk a little bit more about why we're in the situation we're in today um, be, with being down to three judges and what the nature of some of those complaints are? Sure. Um, the short version is that the U.S. believes that the appellate body has been disregarding the rules that they're supposed to be operating under, um, both procedural and, and substantive. Um, procedurally, uh, the appellate body has been regularly missing uh, the 90-day deadline that uh, WTO members established for it uh, to complete their work. Um, it's also been allowing appellate body members whose terms have expired uh, to complete cases that they're working on. Um, and, um, you know, the U.S. feels that the appellate body has been engaging in fact-finding, even though uh, the appellate body's mandate is, is limited to reviewing uh, panel legal errors. Um, substantively, uh, the U.S. feels that the appellate body has just too often engaged in uh, gap-filling and, and creating new rules that members didn't agree to and extending uh, the current provisions. And the U.S. also feels that the appellate body has increasingly been providing advisory opinions on legal provisions that are not at issue in a dispute before them. Um, so those are the, the basic nature of, of, of the concerns. Would you say that these concerns are shared very widely among other WTO member countries? Well, um, other countries have uh, at times agreed that there have been problems in particular cases. Uh, others disagree based on a, a basic philosophical difference about how the system is supposed to operate. They actually like uh, seeing um, an international adjudicator extending the rules. Um, but, you know, even those who have agreed uh, that there have been problems uh, have generally not um, done so openly. And, and that's because, in part, you know, there was a belief that there wasn't a whole lot that could be done about it, um, but also because even if they didn't like the way the appellate body got to a result, they often liked the result. So the concerns have, from others uh, have, have been muted, but there have been some concerns. So let's talk about the why question that's gotten a little bit of attention. Um, you and, and others have pointed out that the U.S. has been insisting on a discussion of why the appellate body has strayed from the rules, or at least why the U.S. has perceived it to have strayed from the rules under which it should operate, rather than focusing on reform proposals. I'd like to quote um, U.S. Ambassador to the World Trade Organization, Dennis Shea, who said very recently, quote, if we WTO members cannot agree that we should be concerned that the appellate body has broken the plain rules that members agreed to in the dispute settlement understanding, then it is difficult to see how we can find solutions to a problem we do not agree exists, unquote. Does he have a point about that? Is it, is it hard for countries to find a joint solution or, or even get to a conversation on proposed solutions if they don't agree that a problem even exists or why it exists? Well, certainly it would be easier to find a solution if there were agreement on, on the problem and why it exists. Uh, but the challenge is, is that some members like the EU, you know, they've been happy with the way the system has evolved, uh, you know, including the way in which the appellate body appears to be taking an expansive view of, of the agreement provisions. Um, you, you may not get the EU to agree that the system is not working correctly, but that doesn't mean 
that they won't agree to make changes to accommodate the U.S. just out of simple necessity. And you know, a, a solution implies a problem, even if not everyone is willing to say so explicitly. So, you know, the why conversation it possibly could help, um, but you know, to the extent that you know there is not, there may not be agreement that there's a problem in the first place. It's not clear that it will move the ball forward uh, beyond what could happen just by looking at solutions. How would you rate the effectiveness of the the strategy of withholding judges to bring attention to this problem? Has it has it brought enough pressure to bear to to get any traction in terms of a uh, discussion in Geneva about how to move forward on this? Has that has that been effective at all in in just um, bringing attention to this and maybe starting to move forward on proposals? Yes, it has. Um, you know, the U.S. tactics certainly haven't been appreciated, but they have gotten the attention of members, and, and there has been a process uh, since the beginning of the year to to actually consider and address the U.S. concerns. You know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, to the extent that other members have had concerns over the years, uh, they've often not raised them. And the reason for that is because in order to make any take any kind of decision at the WTO, you have to do so by consensus. And at some point or another, uh, whenever there have been concerns raised, the you know the the, the general view was, well, what are we going to do about it? We'll never get a consensus. So, um, you know, and and others you know took the view, well, what can anybody do about it, including the U.S., uh, short of breaking the system. Well, that's where we find ourselves now. Um, and um, so it, it has gotten the attention of other members, uh, even if there's been criticism of, of the U.S. for not necessarily engaging on, on solutions in the way they need to. So you, <clears throat> excuse me, you have served as the chief counsel for dispute settlement at the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, as well as legal advisor to the U.S. Mission to the World Trade Organization in Geneva. So I wonder if you could give us just a sense of what it's like on the ground as someone who's worked there on legal issues. You know, when you've got um, a situation of this gravity where the appellate body might cease to function and you have over 160 members of this organization that operates by consensus, what, it is it, what is it like on the ground there when you're working through different issues where countries may have different viewpoints as someone in your position has, has done? Well, it's a real challenge, um, and it it can be quite frustrating. Um, The... you know, the, the, the interest, is, you know, the, 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 everybody agrees that the dispute settlement system is important um, and, and has been uh, really critical to members taking the rules seriously, as well as to resolving disputes and for avoiding disputes, um, because the threat of dispute settlement is there. But in, in, in the context of a particular case, the the concerns which the U.S. has raised with how the system has gotten to a result have often gotten very much tied up with the actual substantive result. And so uh, when other members see the criticisms, they have often assumed that it was merely the substantive result that has been a problem and and been dismissive of, of the U.S. concerns because of that. Uh, so it, it is a challenge. Um, you know, this is a consensus-based organization. Um, the uh, I think it's, it's pretty well understood and established that that consensus-based decision-making process has made it difficult to negotiate new rules, but I think that there hasn't been a full appreciation of how that same consensus-based decision-making made it difficult to provide oversight 
for the dispute settlement system. Um, you know, for example, you know, here in the United States, if there's a court judgment that uh, people are not pleased with, they can go back to Congress and change the law. And that's not really an option at the WTO. So, you know, on the ground, um, there's uh, you know been this this nagging concern that that the appellate body is heading in this direction, but a frustration at the the, the challenge of of actually uh, being able to address it. Mm-hmm. So. You brought up several issues there that lead me to the, my next question, um, one of which is um, the operation of the WTO by consensus and how difficult that can be with so many members. The WTO dispute settlement system itself, including the appellate body, has often been described as the, quote, crown jewel of the WTO because member countries voluntarily give up a little bit of sovereignty to agree to binding dispute settlement but we know that it can be really difficult for big and powerful nations to tie their hands to a set of international rules. So I wonder what your perspective is on whether this crisis was sort of destined to happen at, at some point because of that inherent tension between giving up a little sovereignty, which nations typically don't want to do, um, the tension between that and between you know having a stake in these rules operating well. Um, uh, it's, it, I don't think it was inevitable. Um, you know, the, the U.S. has always been a strong advocate of, of rules-based trade and of strong dispute settlement procedures. Um, they've always been willing uh, to live by the constraints uh, established by the rules that they've agreed to. It's the disagreement on whether the appellate body is going beyond those rules that has precipitated the current crisis. And, and there, you know, it is this latent disagreement on how the system was going to function that, that did perhaps make that, you know, it, it make it inevitable that there would be a crisis. Less so the concern over having sovereignty constrained than more specifically having sovereignty constrained in a way that wasn't agreed to. And um, on the one hand, you, you know, the United States says this is the WTO is a contract. It's an agreement. We only want to see it, its terms enforced based on what we've agreed to. And then you have others like the EU who feel that they've agreed to a process that was uh, going to uh, perhaps flesh out those rules and expand those rules, and they're much more comfortable with it. So to the extent that that philosophical difference was underlying it, then yes, perhaps the, this, this kind of disagreement was inevitable. But it wasn't simply the case that a constraint on, on on sovereignty was was going to lead to a problem. I think that's a really interesting distinction you just brought up there, the difference between a constraint on sovereignty overall um, as a conceptual you know, idea versus a constraint on sovereignty in a way that wasn't agreed to. I think that's a really important part of this discussion that perhaps we haven't heard a lot about um, yet. Um, can you talk just a little bit about some proposed solutions that are out there to the extent that those have been fleshed out yet? I know the EU and Canada have struck a deal last summer to resolve disputes through an alternate mechanism, which doesn't really solve the underlying issue, but it's, it's a workaround for them. Um, reportedly, the EU and Norway have done something similar. Can you describe a little bit about how countries are, or groupings of countries are um, responding either to the underlying concerns or to developing their own uh, workarounds in the event of an appellate body paralysis in December? Sure. Um, the EU has been attempting to uh, convince other WTO members to agree to basically set up a parallel appellate body process uh, so that in their disputes, they can continue to have a, a second stage appeal. Um, 
others have been pursuing other approaches. So there have been some members who have reached agreements with each other uh, at the time uh, a dispute uh, is initiated that uh, if the appellate body is not available to hear an appeal once the panel completes its work, then neither party will uh, appeal to the appellate body and the panel reports themselves can get adopted. Um, just mechanically, the, the challenge uh, after December is that uh, because parties have the right to appeal uh, their panel results to the appellate body. If there isn't an appellate body there to hear it, then uh, the, the case falls into a limbo and the panel results can never become official. But uh, again, so some members have uh, addressed the problem by saying, fine, we just won't appeal. The panel results can become official. So in general, at this point, it looks like there will be various approaches to to uh, workarounds uh, of the situation. You know, the worst case scenario is that there will not be a workaround in a particular case, and uh, either party, if they lose, uh, can then appeal to uh, an appellate body which doesn't exist, and the case will then go into limbo. So that <clears throat> the danger that cases appeals will go into limbo after December 11th um, seems to be one of the most uh, kind of immediate consequences of the appellate body paralysis um, that is being predicted. What else might happen after December 11th if the appellate body ceases to function? Will will the world notice right away? Will it take some time to notice it? Um, will countries want to quickly seek to restore the appellate body when they are really in a situation where they don't have that option to appeal? Well, well, those who have cases pending now um, or are likely to be filed soon will will have to scramble, you know, for one of those alternative approaches to resolve them. There are uh, some uh, cases, including some high-profile cases, where the absence of an appellate body could become uh, a problem and become a problem for uh, those who aren't even involved in the dispute. And here, um, I'm thinking about the Airbus dispute uh, between the U.S. and the EU. Uh, the U.S. recently imposed uh, tariffs, imposed retaliatory tariffs, after receiving authorization from the WTO to do so. But the um, EU is claiming that they've taken additional steps to comply and that they have a panel which is now considering those steps. Um, if that panel actually concludes that the EU has complied and the U.S. retaliation should be reduced, then uh, it could be faced with uh, we could be faced with a situation in which uh, that result couldn't be appealed to the appellate body, and that would fall into limbo, and there would be uh, no way for the U.S. to challenge the, the current U.S. retaliation. So, if that happens, the U.S. has threat, or the EU rather, has threatened that they would retaliate anyhow, and we could end up in, you know, further deepening, you know, the trade disputes with the EU and uh, have further retaliation, which hit, which hits other uh, uh, products, U.S. products outside the sector. Um, you know, whether you know countries are going to try to seek to restore the appellate body quickly will depend, in the first instance, really on on whether there's there's additional engagement um, on solutions from the U.S. and and others. Um, there's a risk that the new, new situation becomes the new normal, 
and the impetus for uh, restoring the system will dissipate, and that uh, perhaps is, is, is the greatest risk overall at this point, because uh, if that happens, then um, you know the, many of the benefits of the system, the dispute settlement system, that is, the knowledge that it's available to resolve disputes, the concern, frankly, that it's available, that forces members to take uh, disputes serious or take their obligations seriously, all of that could be diminished. So this anticipates my question for you about practical implications um, for farmers, for businesses, for all of us, really, if the appellate body ceases to function. And certainly people would be impacted if there were more tit-for-tat retaliation that occurs um, and more uncertainty that could be created overall for global commerce. What else do you see as really practical implications of this um, for the individual, at the individual level? Well, um, you know, to the extent that you know, the absence of uh, the uh, dispute settlement system forces disputes into bilateral, unilateral attempts at enforcement, then we could see new trade wars uh, arising. Um, you know, I mentioned the EU Airbus situation as one of those places where it might occur, but it could happen in a number of other disputes. But more fundamentally, um, to the extent that, you know, the dispute settlement system is not available, you know, there could be countries that are tempted to disregard the rules, uh, knowing that they can't be enforced. Um, you know, the the connection may be a little hard to draw for uh individual uh, farmers and businesses that are doing business, but I, I think that they, they, they could pick up a, a general sense that uh, there's um, uh, more willingness to, to, to bend and stretch rules. So I'd like to zoom out and ask you an overarching question about what we're learning from this um, situation and from the last 20 plus years of, of the appellate body since it's been in place. I read a, a farewell speech by Peter Vandenbosch, who is the most recent appellate body judge to retire, which occurred um, earlier this year in May. And in that farewell speech, he said that the WTO dispute settlement system, quote, was and currently still is a glorious experiment with the rule of law in, in, in international relations, end quote. What have we, we, what have we learned from this experiment in international relations over the last 20 plus years? I think when something new is created and put in place like the dispute settlement understanding, like the appellate body, and it's worked for a number of, of years, decades, that it can be sort of taken for granted. Um, but then we find ourselves in a situation like we are now where the appellate body may, may not um, be functioning in a couple of months. So what, what does this tell us? What have we learned from the last uh, couple of decades um, with this system in place? Well, I think we've learned that, you know, as anticipated and as, as hoped, that dispute settlement, uh, that at the WTO, binding dispute settlement can be extremely valuable, um, you know, not only in resolving particular disputes, but in avoiding disputes, uh, in reinforcing respect for the rules. Um, at the same time, though, uh, you know, we, we have learned that, as I mentioned earlier that dispute settlement's not immune uh, to the fundamental governance problems that the rest of the WTO has been subject to. And that, you know, to the extent that we've put together a, you know, a binding system with automatic uh, automaticity and the adoption of make, or making official the results of these panels, um, that more thought needed to be given to ensuring that uh, the, the system was going to operate uh, subject to constraints. And you know, the the constraints that, that members did write in 
the rules for dispute settlement perhaps need to be made more specific and clarified uh, to ensure that everybody who's a participant in the system is confident that it's operating as they had anticipated that it would. Okay. Finally, um, I've come to the, the end. Um, our, my last question for you, which I ask every guest on this show, is um, what are you reading right now about trade or um, a book or an article that's most striking to you? Well, um, let's see. Uh, it, it's a bit wonky, but uh, I recently uh, spoke on a panel at the WTO Public Forum on the national security exception. So I've been reading up on that. And I read a good article by uh, Simon Lester at the Cato Institute on um, ways or procedures that the WTO may want to set up to address trade measures that are, have been taken for national security purposes. Um, there's a lot of countries right now that are invoking these types of measures, or the, the, this, this exception, and, and taking these kinds of measures, not just the U.S., and uh, there really have not been a lot of very well-developed procedures for dealing with it. Uh, so this article is interesting. It's called Cl- Closing the Pandora's Box. Um, and it appeared in a, a policy analysis from Cato in June. Um, and it just let, sets out uh, some ideas for how to manage these kinds of cases without further stressing the dispute settlement system. Like I said, it's a bit wonky. Well, that's okay. <laughs> wonky is good sometimes. Um, thank you, Bruce. Um, I think we could have an entire conversation just about the national security exception, so we may have to do that another time. But um, <laughs> thank you so much for this very educational conversation about the WTO dispute settlement system and the appellate body. Um, We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. That's it for this episode of Trade Matters. A big thank you to Bryce Duskett, Haley Apel, and Brianne Wolf for helping produce this podcast. Join us next time for a conversation with Katrin Kuhlman, president and founder of New Markets Lab and visiting professor at Georgetown University Law Center. Please subscribe to Trade Matters on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have ideas or topics you would like to hear about on Trade Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at yiderinstitute at unl.edu. That's Y-E-U-T-T-E-R institute at unl.edu. Or follow us on Twitter at UNL underscore Yider. Opinions expressed on trade matters are solely those of the guest or host and not the Yider Institute or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.